We'll hear argument now on number 95, 1649, uh, Kansas versus Leroy Hendricks, and 95, 90, 75, Leroy Hendricks versus Kansas. Uh, General Stovall. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, throughout the decades, the states have developed three basic ways to deal with persons who commit sex crimes, criminal punishment, treatment in lieu of sentencing, and the law that you have before you today, Kansas' sexually violent predator law, which is a hybrid of both. Leroy Hendricks has experienced all three during his 40-year history of sexually molesting children. It was the goal of the Kansas legislature, by providing for treatment subsequent to punishment, that we could succeed where the other procedures have failed, enabling Kansas to reduce the risk that Leroy Hendricks poses to our children. The civil commitment of sex offenders who suffer from a mental condition linked to their sex crimes has been approved by this court on two prior occasions, by Pearson in 1940 and Allen in 1986. The court's guidance in what is the constitutional minimal for an acceptable level of mental condition for commitment is found in the Addington decision, wherein the court prescribed confinement for merely idiosyncratic behavior or conduct that is not within the generally acceptable bounds of conduct. Truly no one would argue that Leroy Hendricks was engaging in merely idiosyncratic behavior. General Stovall, may I ask you whether, um, how you fit this kind of a law into any situation with which we have previously dealt. It seems to be kind of a new category of only insofar as that we have treatment subsequent to punishment, Your Honor, instead of treatment in lieu of sentencing. Um, how would this be cabined in the future, do you think, if we uphold it? Could a state lock up any kind of violent offender who's diagnosed as having a mental abnormality of some kind, not mentally ill, uh, and at the same time be likely to commit uh, more crimes in the future. I think, Justice O'Connor, as long as the state could show that there's a, a medical justification for a diagnosis and that we can show dangerousness, not of mental illness, but of some kind of uh, mental aberration or personality disorder. Well, the, the term mental illness is one that this court has certainly used in its decisions, but never defined. And in fact, in Addington, where the language of mental illness was used, the court also used mental disorder, mental disease, emotional disorder, emotional disturbance, almost synonymously and interchangeably. And so I would submit the mental abnormality that Kansas has in our statute is not different from those things that, that you have previously approved. Well, Gen yeah. General, General Stovall, don't you think in using those terms uh, in our opinions, we, we are certainly lay people from a medical point of view, and they probably are not used in any strict medical sense. And I'm a layperson in that regard, too, Your Honor. But when you look, Mr. Chief Justice, at the, at the DSM where, we where the psychiatric profession describes particular kinds of condition, the things that, that the medical community tends to understand would fit within this definition would be two paraphilias, which are pedophilia and sexual sadism, which are terms that have been recognized by the community and still would fit within this definition. General Stovall, can I clarify that you are not trying to... Uh you're not suggesting that this court ought to establish 
some kind of national standard for what is mental illness or mental abnormality. Haven't those definitions been left to the state? Justice Ginsburg, that's exactly right, and that's what the state of Kansas would ask us, ask you to do, so long as we still have a mental justification, a medical justification for commitment, and we show dangerousness. Well, I take it that even the DSM says that these categories have no real operational consistency and that you look uh, to the diagnosis or the prognosis on a case-by-case basis after clinical evaluation. That's true, Justice Kennedy, and in fact, the DSM in, in the beginning of the, the introduction part says that, that this was not created for legal use or for forensic meaning, but it's to aid the psychiatric profession in making some diagnosis that they then can apply to this definition in the Kansas statute of mental abnormality. You, you, you began by saying, and, and this was part of Justice O'Connor's line of questioning too, uh, that this is a hybrid between a criminal statute and a civil statute. I should think, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's a hybrid, I'm sorry, it's a hybrid between criminal sentencing and treatment in lieu of punishment, but it's clearly a civil commitment. Yes, and it, it, I was going to say, it seems to me that uh, your argument, in, in your brief at least, is one in which you can justify this statute strictly as a civil commitment. Uh, if, if your statutory uh, scheme were changed somewhat and uh, you, you had an adequate prognosis of... Uh, dangerous sexual behavior, a civil commitment could follow under your argument, I take it. Yes. In, in fact, this court has specifically approved in, in Baxter in 1966 being able to civilly commit mentally Ill, Ill inmates at the conclusion of their prison sentence. And so this is no different than what you have approved previously, except that we have crafted out a very specific mental commitment statute for this particular group of offenders. Also, that there's no difference in this man than there was the day he went into prison. And that's what's unusual about this, isn't it? If he is in this category of having a mental abnormality, he's no more or less abnormal at the time he finishes his, his criminal sentence than he was the day he began to serve it. Justice Ginsburg, that would be true for Leroy Hendricks, who certainly is the, the respondent here. But Kansas in our prison system has the ability and, in fact, requires inmates that are convicted of sex offenses to go through treatment. So they do have the ability, while receiving treatment in prison, to shed themselves, not of the diagnosis of pedophilia, for example, but of the later part of the definition, which is being likely to continue to engage in predatory acts of sexual violence because they've gone through treatment. And so we have seen that happen, that if they complete treatment, they might not have the abnormality on the inside, Whereas your question was, are they going to come in with it? They're not going to develop one while they're in. So if they come in with one, then, then they will have that before they enter the prison. Do you have some studies that we could refer to uh, to support that? Uh, my, my impression was that the psychiatrists cannot really, or clinicians, certify the, uh, uh, the, the, the patient as, 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 as being unlikely to repeat unless they observe him in a normal environment, and he's not in a normal environment when he's prison, in prison, so it's just somewhat circular. There are, are many studies that were cited in, in our brief, Justice Kennedy, two that come to mind talk about the efficacy of treatment, of a cognitive behavioral-based treatment, which is what we provide, and that is certainly the state of the art now in the psychiatric community for sex offenders. One study would show that uh, people that went through treatment had an 8% rate of, of recidivism, whereas people that didn't go through had a 20% rate. And that was coming out of a state hospital uh, in California, so it was a, a confined environment. 
Is eight percent high enough? I mean, what if the state says, you know, eight percent is still too high a risk? What, where, at, at what percentage of uh, unlikelihood to commit more of these offenses does the state uh, release these individuals? Justice Scalia, that will be a question for the judge and jury to decide. A, a psychiatric professional would have to make the determination. What do you tell the jury? You know, is is there no chance that this individual will? Uh, will commit acts of these uh, of this sort again if he's released? Or is there an 8% chance? Or a, What do you tell the jury? The jury instructions in Kansas just simply ask them to find whether or not he's likely to continue to engage in predatory acts of sexual violence. The testimony at the trial... Likely? What was that? 49% would, would I would be would willing to assert it? that it's 51%, Justice Scalia, and the testimony at the trial... It's pretty the generous. Minute. If it's, uh, you know, 51-49 that, uh, that he'll uh, continue to do this, you let him loose. There has been no determination as to what percent that is, and we don't give that guidance to the jury in Kansas. Dr. Beckford, who testified at the sex predator trial, testified in his view that um, he was, was saying that Mr. Hendricks would reoffend within a 51 percent chance. Well, you don't define reasonable doubt in a criminal case in terms of 15 percent or 12 percent. Uh, we've never required that sort of precision. That's true, Mr. Chief Justice, and, and we don't give any more of, of that decision within our statute as well. But and and what if it's judgment. clear that the, the treatment will not be effective? What if the, uh, uh, the uh, convicted defendant puts on psychiatric testimony that says, you know, you can talk about treating this all you like, but there's, there's, there's no effective treatment? What Kansas has done is to provide for treatment, and I think that's all that we have to do, and not show that Mr. Hendricks, for example, at a Even when treatment is, is ineffective, you, you generously provide for treatment when there's no reason to think the treatment's going to do any good. Let me clarify, Justice Scalia. Do you mean for the particular person being committed for the Suppose the, the evidence is clear that, yes, he will, he will do it again if he's released, but treatment is not going to help that at all. I think in that case, we still have the ability to commit an individual because we're providing for the treatment. We're doing everything that we can. Well, because you're providing for a treatment that is not going to do any good? But we don't, I don't know that we I mean, I can understand your position. We, we, we can commit him treatment or not just because he's dangerous. You know, and, and we can commit him and not even provide any treatment. I can understand that. But I can't understand the position that we can only commit him if we provide treatment, even though it's, it's entirely clear that treatment will do entirely no good. The court has never required, in my understanding, for a state to be able to show that a cure is guaranteed for somebody or that they will necessarily benefit from it. And but, so but that's not necessarily this case, I take it, because you're... You're at least claiming that this man is treatable to some degree. I don't know how much, but you're claiming that there is some treatability in, in his condition. Isn't that correct? Absolutely, Justice Souter. Now, so, so that in, in the challenge that we've got before us, um, we would not, in order to hold your way, have to go beyond saying, I suppose, that this was mental illness within the meaning of the term as we used it in Fuchsia, because of two things. Uh, number one, it fell into at least a recognized psychiatric category, um, which gets us away from a purely idiosyncratic judgment about one individual's dangerousness. And it is a treatable condition. Uh, and that's all you would need to win. Am I correct? As long as so we far as the show dangerousness as well. Yeah, I, mean, yeah, I think yeah. we have that obligation as well. So, uh, so we could, if, if we ruled your way, we could leave for another day the question of, of what to do under, we'll say, the Fuchsia rule in a case in which there was a recognized psychiatric category of abnormality, uh, but, uh, but one that was totally untreatable, one that was permanent, nothing could be done about it. So, I, I you, so you, you don't have to, 
You don't have to have as broad a rule as you were speaking. May I clarify one thing? The court below indicated uh, that Kansas contemplated in the future some kind of treatment, but wasn't providing any. Has that changed? Justice O'Connor, what the the Kansas Supreme Court did was look at one prior district court ruling in a motion for new trial, which found that there was treatment. A subsequent habeas corpus proceeding at the trial level found there was treatment in Kansas. The Supreme Court seemed to to not question that there was some level of treatment in Kansas, but but question the efficacy of treatment in the community in general. How could you just answer the question? Is Kansas providing any treatment? Absolutely, Justice O'Connor. And what kind of treatment other than locking them up in a special ward? Cognitive behavioral-based treatment. What is that? It doesn't mean anything to me. It didn't to me in the beginning of this case either, Justice O'Connor. It is a it's a method of looking at the, the cognitive distortion somebody has, the maladaptive thinking patterns that lead them to commit maladaptive behavior within this context, it's the sexual behavior. In addition to what that... What kind of treatment is that? I just don't understand. Are you trying to train people to think differently? Part of, or what is the treatment? Part of it does have to do with, with stopping those thinking patterns, helping them identify, for one thing, what their thinking patterns are that are maladaptive and not like the rest of us, and then how to stop the behavior, how to stop the thinking patterns from leading directly into that behavior. And there is certainly some level of of behavioral modification in the program. They receive 31 and a half hours of treatment per week. Part of it is this cognitive-based theory as well as the general issues of of social skills, self-esteem, anger management, rebuilding relationships, family issues, value clarifications, the, the gamut of treatment. General, I, I thought, maybe I'm wrong, I, I thought the whole point of the DSM was that this is not a cognitive disorder. But it's, I mean, the, you know, correct me if, if that's wrong. The, the definition of, of mental abnormality in our Kansas statute is that it is a congenital or an acquired condition and that... But that's not cognitive. You're correct, Justice, Justice Kennedy. The... Um, the treatment is a combination of both cognitive restructuring as well as behavioral modification. And so they need to initially be able to identify the, the cognitive, the, the thinking distortions that occur. Instead of just like 30 years ago, all we would have done is sort of the 12-step addiction model, try to deal with the behavior and not the thought processes that preceded that behavior. May I ask you a question about this statute and what the state's position is? The statute defines a sexually violent predator as a person who has been convicted or charged with a sexually violent offense and who suffers from a mental abnormality or personality disorder, which makes the person likely to engage in predatory acts of sexual violence. Would the statute be constitutional, in your view, if it left out the requirement that there be a prior conviction, if it were like the Illinois statute on which you rely? Just to come in with an indictment of this and say, in addition, we think he's likely to do it in the future. Would that be constitutionally said? I think so, Justice Stevens. What Kansas has chosen to do... So really, the prior convictions are merely evidentiary support under the statute for the the finding that it's more likely than not that this person will be violent. It's somewhat evidence of that as well as it's a limiting of Kansas's decision who to commit. We can't just pick somebody off the street. Why not? That's what puzzles me. Oh, constitutionally, I think that we could, but the legislature chose to very narrowly define them. Only those who've previously been punished or ones who would be... Because the idea is that we're trying to identify those that pose the greatest risk to the community. But I don't understand why a person who's indicted on very strong evidence that probable cause shouldn't be subjected to exactly the same treatment. There are certainly those that would argue, Justice Stevens, that we should have a more expanded law and include more people in it, but that's not what the legislature chose to do, though. If we agree that it is a preponderance standard that's determinative here, it has to be more likely than not that the person will engage in this kind of conduct in the future. 
more likely than not about the dangerousness, but the state has a beyond a reasonable doubt. But beyond a reasonable doubt of proving that he's likely to do it, which exactly. boils down to a preponderance standard, of course. Do you, do you agree that at least under the law as it exists this morning, if you were providing no treatment at all, and that could be shown, uh, that an individual would be entitled to release on habeas? I think this court has, as I read decisions of the court, has never been extremely clear as to whether or not treatment is absolutely required. I'm fortunate that we don't have that issue in Kansas because we do pr provide for treatment. Well, I it, think it's an it, issue. I'm sorry. At least for, for purposes of, of the case that you've brought to us, it would be sufficient to decide the case, I suppose, on, on the mental illness ground to say that this was a treatable condition and therefore qualified as mental illness within the meaning of the term in Fuchsia. Uh, and, and that implies treatability, I presume. Uh, and, and I suppose that treatability, in a way, is kind of the quid pro quo for the capacity of the state to lock somebody up. Uh, so that if we went no further than the Fuchsia rule and no further than the rule that would cover the case that you've brought to us this morning, I would suppose that uh, a, a failure or refusal to treat would be grounds for release. Would, would you agree with that? And Mr. Hendricks certainly would have the ability to file a habeas action in either state or federal court challenging that if, if, if he were not getting any sort of treatment at all or if he was unable to, to be released without, yeah. without reason. Well, I, I suppose the, the quid pro quo for locking him up uh, or the reason for locking him up is that he's a danger to others and that uh, the Treatability bears on the fairness of the conditions of his confinement. That is to say, it is thought uh, that it is unfair to confine him without treatment if there's any likelihood of success. Uh, is that the underlying rationale? Well, it is for us. It's an easy call to make for us, Justice Kennedy, because we do provide for treatment. Whether or not I'm, I'm talking about the, 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 the general rule. I think that that's, that's correct, is that the, the decisions have, have um, indicated by some justices that there need to be some level of treatment and others um, have sort of left the door open. But from Kansas' standpoint, it's an easier call because we clearly do provide treatment. General Stowell, will you be devoting some of your oral argument to a response to the cross-petitioner's claims? If I have the opportunity to do that, yeah. Mr. Chief Justice. Let's hope you do. Yeah. And, and perhaps you could also re respond to how far does this spread? Could you apply the same theory, theory say, to arsonists? It is something new in the, in the preventative de detention line, isn't it? It is somewhat, although for the last 60 years, states have been dealing with a way to be able to civilly detain sex offenders in particular. They've not looked to do that for arsonists or others. But in the, the 1940, this court approved the Pearson decision that did allow for commitment of someone with a sex offense. But I think Justice Connor in the beginning asked the question that, that I think relates to this, and that is, I think as long as the state can demonstrate that there is a medically justified condition and that there is a manifestation of a threat to be the dangerousness element, that a state probably could do that if, if there was some level of harm that they were trying to prevent and identify. When you say uh, may I just say, then why isn't this case covered by Addington against Texas, where you require clear and convincing evidence? And you only require more likely than not. I, I think clear and convincing would be sufficient from a constitutional perspective. So you don't provide that. You just say it has to be likely that it'll do this. It's beyond a reasonable doubt that it would be likely, but it's really a preponderant standard, standard which is not, doesn't comply with Addington. But only one of the elements, though, of the definition would be likely to, well, to cause Well, the fact that likely do this 
commit the harm to the, to the children. Right, and the other is the mental abnormality, and when you take it in totality, we have beyond a reasonable doubt to show that. And one, but a key element doesn't require beyond a reasonable doubt. The key element of the definition just requires that they be likely to do it. That's a preponderance standard. But I still think overall the state has to be able to sustain that burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. It has to doubt prove that it's likely beyond a reasonable doubt, yeah. but that's, that's, you can't, you know, I, I think we 51%. Uh, when you speak of, of a, I think uh, you, you spoke of a, a medically, rec you didn't use the word medically recognized uh, category. What was the term? Medically justified. Medically justified. Do you mean by that uh, a, a category which, which is recognized in some standard medical literature like the DSM manual? I don't think that we are limited, Justice Souter, just to the DSM, but I think certainly the psychiatric community has to, to believe that this is a condition that they can identify and diagnose. But you, you don't take the position that the, or maybe you do, that the, that the legislature of any state could say, we recognize a category of mental abnormality or mental illness. It hasn't been recognized in any medical or psychiatric literature, but we're recognizing it now. And that satisfies the, the rule uh, that requires some mental illness element. Do you, you wouldn't say that it's... That would not be the argument the state would make. We're, we're very comfortable with the fact that, what, that what we're describing are, is medically what, justified. What is, the, what is the function of this medical recognition, as you understand it, under Fuchsia? Why do we, why do we have this element? Why, do we, why would you say, why do you say, that in order to satisfy the mental illness element under Fuchsia, there has got to be a medically recognized category within which the particular individual falls. I think so that the court doesn't worry that we can find merely for dangerousness or merely for a class of people that that we don't want to be around. We need to, to be able to civilly commit and provide treatment for them. It has to be a medically recognized condition. It's, it's less likely to be abused if there's a categorical approach rather than a purely individual approach. That would be correct. Do you know of any medically recognized condition that has been medically uh, uh, determined to be non-treatable? Is there any such thing as a medically I, I, recognized condition which, uh, which the medical profession is willing to say is non-treatable? Not that I'm aware of. They would say that they're not curable, but not necessarily not treatable. If perhaps I, I should, should try to take the discussion to the criminal side of things and address the issues that, that you accepted the cross-petition on of Mr. Hendricks. The state maintains that this is not a criminal sanction, as Leroy Hendricks indicates, prior the Allen versus Illinois case in 1986 is the one that we would ask you to turn the attention to because it was so similar. While it did provide for commitment instead of punishment, admittedly, there's no reason from a constitutional perspective that that should be significant. When you looked at the Allen decision, the similarities between the Illinois statute and Kansas statutes are so great, and you found that that to be a civil statute. Even though it was triggered by the commission of a crime, you found that that only limited the group of people that it applied to. It didn't make it criminal. Even though the state in that case had beyond a reasonable doubt for a burden, even though Illinois extended to the potential sexually dangerous person the same criminal protections in terms of being able to call their own witnesses, having an attorney, a jury trial, and the like, you still found that that wasn't criminal. And even putting the individual in the custody of the Secretary of Corrections and putting them in a maximum secured facility for treatment was not held to be criminal. Those are all the same kinds of things that we do in the state of Kansas. Hadn't a similar um, situation applied to Hendricks at one stage? I mean, you said everything had happened to him. He'd been put in prison. He'd been put in a mental institution. What was, was the other 
incarceration like the one in Allen? Justice O'Connor, I'm, I'm sorry, Justice Ginsburg, it was um, in, in 1964 in, in the state of Washington, and he was sent there under a psychopathic personality statute. But that was a civil commitment? Yes, Your Honor. Uh, but not under this current statute. That was under some... In Washington now, you mean? It was in 1964, and it was a different kind of commitment. Washington just has their sexually violent predator statute like we have since 1990. So this would have been a, a, a much earlier forerunner of what the current version is. Could you address the cross-petition question? Thank you for the opportunity, Justice Kennedy. But we think that if you use the, the Ursary test, which Mr. Hendricks' counsel supported as well, you look to see what the legislative intent was. Was it civil or criminal? The, le the language in our preamble and throughout the statute talks about civil. So if it's established as criminal on the face, then Mr. Hendricks has the burden to show by the clearest proof that the application is so punitive that it becomes criminal. But in looking at the Kennedy factors, there is only one of those that you can answer yes to, and that is that, indeed, we have a disability, an affirmative restraint of his liberty. We don't find it to be a fundamental restraint, but admittedly it's a restraint. But the rest of the categories in terms of, of whether this commitment process has ever been historically viewed as punishment, we would answer no. We've never looked at civil commitment as punishment. It does not come into play only on the criminal conviction. We have to have more than that. We have to have the mental abnormality, and there has to be the likelihood of predatory act. It doesn't serve the traditional aims of punishment, of retribution or deterrence, but it serves the aim on the civil side of incapacitation and of treatment so we can change this behavior. There are, when you run through the, the seven of the factors there, there are, are distinct differences as to why it's not found to be criminal. The Allen versus Illinois statute is, again, extremely important in being able to make those distinctions between civil and criminal. And we would ask that, that those be the kinds of, of um, issues that you look at in making this decision. When you look at the rights that are afforded to the mentally ill inmates and the sexually violent predators that are in Kansas custody, they are very similar. In fact, the, the, the sexually violent predators are extended the same bill of rights that the mentally ill patients have. That's not the case, though, when you look at Department of Correction inmates and the way that they are treated versus our sexually violent predators. There's distinct differences in their clothing, their personal property, their telephone visitation privileges, and the like. And so there's a tremendous difference there as well. If you have a minute, could you go back to Justice Stevens' question? In Addington, I take it, the court held that you must have, you must say, based on clear and convincing evidence, does Frank Addington require hospitalization in a mental hospital for the protection of others. How does the Kansas statute meet that requirement in respect to requiring hospitalization for the protection of others? Because one of the requirements in our definition is that the individual go to a secure facility, a securely confined facility. So that would be similar to the hospitalization. No, I'm not worried about that part. I'm worried about the part how, by clear and convincing evidence, to show that he is dangerous to others. Because what I thought you said is in Kansas you don't have to show this by clear and convincing evidence. You have to show it by a preponderance of the evidence. It is one of the elements, Justice Breyer, that we have to show. But again, I think the overall burden of proof of being beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, suppose we disagree with you. Suppose we think that the burden of proof that you impose is the preponderance of the evidence then don't you lose the case under, uh, under our previous precedent? Well, 
the Addington decision clearly talked about for, for civil commitment, you had to show it by clear and convincing. You're right, but it was more than just simply the dangerousness element. It also was that you had to show the mental illness, as I understand it, oh, by that standard as like, well. Oh, yeah. Right, and, and we clearly do that in terms of the mental abnormality. And I understand that's where the issue is for the court, but you still have to show the likelihood of committing that harm is beyond a reasonable doubt. And so it's, it's showing a 51% burden by a, an 80% What did we mean by dangerousness in that case? Uh, might not we have meant by dangerousness simply the same thing that's uh, the test here, that he's likely to, uh, to harm somebody, which that, would have converted that into a preponderance standard as well, if you follow that reasoning. That would be exactly right. Just that's not please. what the opinion says, if you read it carefully. But the, the Kansas, the, the, your, your state courts have not construed the standard to be a beyond the reasonable doubt standard in the classic sense, has it? In other words, we could say, a court could say, look, proving likelihood beyond a reasonable doubt really means prove it beyond a reasonable doubt that he will do thus and so. But that isn't what your courts have said, is it? There has only been one court in Kansas that would have looked at this issue, and that was the the Kansas Supreme Court yeah. made that final determination, and that that's, was not part of their decision. Could, could, they ask you, I could I ask you another question, assuming this is not an obstacle? Imagine an armed robber who has committed many armed robberies and a psychologist who says he has a sociopathic personality. Now, under those circumstances, do you believe it would be constitutional, since he may, lots of testimony, commit many more armed robberies? and you have some psychologists who say he has sociopathic personality, would it be constitutional for a state to keep him under the correct standard, clear and convincing, review every year, we're going to look at this over and over, confined in a mental hospital? And how do you distinguish that case from this one? One of the distinctions is the, the level of personality disorder that is there. Go ahead and answer the question. The, um, the indication in, in the Fisher decision, for example, was that simply a personality disorder might not be enough for commitment. And that's clearly not what the state has with, in this condition. We have a, a pedophile, a recognized mental disorder that is subject to the commitment. And so the, the mental condition, the medically justified condition, is so much greater than in, in your example. Thank you, General Stovall. Mr. Weiler. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the State of Kansas is extending the incarceration of Mr. Hendricks beyond the term of sentence imposed in the plea agreement he reached with the State of Kansas in 1984. The State should not be allowed to circumvent the constitutional prohibitions against ex post facto and double jeopardy by calling for an effectively permanent incapacitation that's imposed based upon the commission of criminal acts a civil commitment for treatment. Neither should the strict limits of preventive detention outside of the criminal law be broadened to allow such a confinement to prevent the possibility of the commission of a criminal offense at some unspecified point in the future. To do so would fundamentally undermine our constitutionally guaranteed right of liberty. We suggest that the Sexually Violent Predator Act is in fact a criminal enactment, even though the legislature labeled it a civil proceeding. Well, didn't the court in Backstrom uphold essentially the notion that the state could commit people after they were released from prison in a civil commitment proceeding? 
believe the court upheld that they could commit after a pardon me after a criminal sentence if they were mentally ill. Yes, Your Honor. Yes, and we have left largely to the state uh, to define what constitutes uh, a mental illness within that framework. That is correct. However, so maybe this boils down to whether this particular condition of pedophilia, or however you pronounce it, uh, qualifies. Your Honor, I don't believe that the constitutional standard for mental illness can be the equivalent of any uh, diagnosis that might come out of the DSM. And that is essentially what the state, I believe, is trying to argue. Talk about this specific condition of pedophilia and whether that is open to the state to uh, include within the broad concept of some kind of uh, mental illness. Pedophilia, as I understand it, is diagnosed based upon prior commission of criminal acts. If pedophilia was sufficient to form the basis for a civil commitment, then any other uh, act, such as Justice Breyer was speaking of, armed robbery or uh, any number of other criminal acts, which would be the diagnostic basis for an antisocial personality disorder, would also be sufficient to... This court has suggested that may not be so, but is this a different kind of of category of, of mental aberration? Pedophilia, as opposed to any other of the DSM? As opposed to a tendency uh, to have an antisocial personality. I don't believe there's anything that I've read which would indicate that it is any different than an antisocial personality. Well, well suppose you had a paranoid schizophrenia, acute type, uh, and the diagnosis was that the person was dangerous to himself and to others. Could you commit there? That would be acceptable under the normal civil commitment statute, Your Honor, where the commitment is based upon the inability of the person to take care of themselves and make rational decisions about their treatment. And then because the commitment is for the person's own good, he can be civilly committed. Well, yep. the, the, the rationality is, 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 is not a part of, of the civil commitment preconditions. Generally, in... in well, why is it that you can commit the, the, the paranoid schizophrenic and, and, and not this person? Because the treatment, pardon me, the commitment of the paranoid schizophrenic is for his own good to help him to overcome his... But, but, but suppose the condition, the condition for his incarceration was he was dangerous to others. I don't believe that a, a uh, paranoid schizophrenic could be committed unless there was first a finding that the commitment would be for his own good. I believe commitment strictly because of the dangerousness would be unconstitutional. The Supreme Court of Kansas, uh, Mr. Well, its opinion, which upheld jury, the majority upheld your point of view, said the state could get around, could uh, handle it by simply imposing a life sentence on these people, and there would be no constitutional problem. Does that really solve any problem to, to say that the state can't do what it does here, but it can come back and impose a life sentence on a person for the first pedophilic offense? Your Honor, it is a decision that the uh, state can make under its criminal pro- or criminal powers. If the state would choose to impose a life sentence on the first time, there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But even in this case, there are a number of things the state can do other than commit some person for a second time because of the criminal actions he's committed. They can place very uh, restrictive parole conditions. 
they can even enact some criminal legislation which would make it illegal for someone with a sex offense to have uh, contact with children in a public place, go around schoolyards and enforce that criminal. Why is all that okay? I don't understand. I mean, if, if the principle you're arguing for is correct, why aren't those restrictions just as, uh, just as improper? The restrictions that I spoke of as far as parole or conditional release in this case. It's a restriction of his physical liberty. It's a restriction of his liberty, but it's not a confinement that is a massive curtailment of that liberty, and I believe that's the distinction. But life imprisonment certainly would be, and one of the arguments that the state makes is we're doing something gentler and kinder here, that, that instead of locking him up in a maximum security prison for the rest of his life, we say there's a criminal sentence, and then maybe uh, there's not much chance of it, but maybe he'll be all right at the end of the term. If he's not at the end of the term, we put him in another uh, confinement form of confinement. Uh, why does the Constitution force the most harsh solution, I suppose, is what the state is urging? The Constitution does not force that the most harsh Remedy. The state of Kansas at the time of Mr. Hendricks' commission of these acts in 1984 had a procedure and still does have a procedure where he could be psychologically evaluated and committed for care if that was in fact uh, necessitated or recommended by that evaluation. The only limitation on that uh, term of care and treatment, if needed, would be the maximum sentence that could have been imposed by the criminal act or on the criminal acts, which in this case in 1984 was 45 to 180 years. Maybe maybe the state has to take the harsher course because the harsher course is the only one that is less manipulable. I believe that. I mean, isn't there some fear about, about you know, uh, uh, totalitarian regimes don't put people in jail for crimes. They commit them for mental treatment. It's a very hard thing to nail down, isn't it? Who's mentally ill and, and who has finally been cured? I believe that is a very... Astute observation, just and so mainly to uh, perhaps to protect against that uh, the, the state, if it, if it wants to protect itself, has to take the harsher course. It is certainly the op- or pardon me, an avenue open to the state to do it that way. It's not necessarily required though, because the state could provide for an indeterminate sentence also, which would be dependent upon the person then proving to the parole authorities that he was safe to be at large. But surely that would be manipulable, too, if that is to be part of the test, if, if the parole authorities are to have that sort of discretion. Well, certainly the parole authorities would have to have some discretion, but it would, be, it would not be manipulative in the same way that the states could formulate a plan to commit persons based solely upon dangerousness, which we believe this act uh, provides an opportunity. What, what, what's the, your best authority from this court for the proposition that you can only have a civil commitment for the best interest of the person and not for the safety of society? It is in Addington versus Texas, the court basically said the uh, commitment is for those who cannot take care of themselves. And that is for the, for the, uh, being in the best interest of the person comes from. What is is the rationale, if if that is the correct reading of Addington, what is is the explanation for it, that everyone has has a constitutional right to commit a crime once before he can be committed? 
No, Your Honor. I don't believe anyone has a constitutional right to commit a crime, however. Before he can be committed civilly. It would not require the commission of a crime to be committed civilly, but it would require the finding of a uh, mental disease or mental illness and the finding of dangerousness both by no but you, you say he, he he can only be committed if it's for his own good if we're talking about civil commitment i believe that that is the underlying basis for civil commitment no, i thought abington said dangerous to others didn't as well as dangerous to himself it does say that it is dangerous to himself or others and that is in conjunction with the uh need that, or pardon me, con, in conjunction with the fact that he is unable to care for himself and needs commitment. But Addington was just talking about the burden of proof when you're going ahead with civil commitment. It didn't purport to categorize every single situation which would justify a civil commitment if you met the burden of proof. While Addington was a procedural uh, due process case, I believe the uh, concept that a civil commitment has to be based upon dangerousness and mental illness was carried into uh, fruition by this court in Fuchsia versus Louisiana. We would suggest that the primary reason for the Kansas statute having been passed was to continue the incarceration of persons who were being released from confinement following their conviction and sentence on sexual offenses. That finding was made by the Kansas Supreme Court, where it said that the primary uh, objective was to continue incarceration and the treatment was incidental at best. That's further. Mr. Warren, are you complaining just about timing? We suppose um, Mr. Hendricks is charged, indicted, found guilty, and then instead of having the ordinary criminal incarceration, at that point we have this SVP proceeding. And so although he has a criminal conviction, he's never, the time that he served has been pursuant to this special proceeding. Would there be anything unconstitutional about that? That's the situation in Colorado versus Speck, or Speck versus Colorado, where the court approved that type of situation where instead of a specific term of criminal incarceration that allowed for an indeterminate term um, and found that it was in fact a criminal incarceration even though it's for the purpose of in incapacitation rather than retribution. The, that raised, that, correct me if I'm wrong, I thought that case raised a procedural due process question. That was a procedural uh, claim, Your Honor, where there was not a hearing for that uh, second sentencing procedure, but that would be an appropriate type. Kansas could make the decision at the time of the original conviction to go to a sexual uh, psychopath type law, much as it could have done back in 1984 when Kansas did have such a law in effect. So you're saying that they could, they could have done it on the spot, but they can't do it five years later? Uh, it's now 12 years later, Your Honor, and the reason they can't do it now is because, first of all, it is a continue, a second incarceration for the same conviction, the same criminal act that he committed back in 1984. Secondly, we are talking about a situation where if, even though this act is purported to be civil, it's in fact 
criminal because the intent and purpose and effect of the legislation is, is criminal. And I would suggest that even back in 1984, if the only thing that the state had to prove was a mental abnormality, that there would be some question about whether the commitment could have occurred at that time, rather than proving a mental illness, which could be treated. So you're modifying the answer that you first gave me. You're not so sure that you could have been done immediately after the conviction. There could have been a, a uh, civil or a commitment for treatment done in 1984, yes. If there had been a, uh, if there had not been a criminal sentence imposed at that time. In the uh, Kansas Supreme Court's decision, it went on after saying that the main purpose of the incarceration, or the, yes, the incarceration was for punishment and not for treatment. It, well, they didn't use those words, punishment, did they? Pardon me, for uh, incapacitation rather than treatment. Right. And incapacitation has been recognized by the court as one of the... And do you say that no treatment is being provided now the, to your client? The record reflects that the Kansas Supreme Court made that finding based upon the evidence presented both at the uh, trial court and the habeas court where the head of the treatment facility said that the persons there were receiving essentially no treatment other and than... what about today? Today, um, it's my understanding there is some group therapy being given. There, I don't believe there's any indication on the record that such therapy is effective or has any hope of being effective to overcome the uh, condition of pedophilia primarily because, as the state's expert testified, pedophilia is a diagnosis that, once made, remains with the person forever. Well, there's no question, I gather, that this man is uh, very much likely to commit sexual offenses against children in the future if released. There's certainly no... no Strong evidence to that effect. There's certainly no doubt that Mr. Hendricks presents a risk of committing further crimes if released. To they, children. To children. That is what his previous crimes have been, yes. But I don't believe that we can incarcerate people solely because they have the possibility of committing a criminal act. Itself. So what's the state future. supposed to do? Just wait till he goes out and does it again? No, Chief Justice, Mr. Chief Justice. The state has other opportunities, or pardon me, other means available to it. It can... Uh, you know, impose very stringent conditions of parole, have him repeat, pardon me, report uh, very frequently, require him to stay away from children, require him to stay away from schoolyards. It can, uh, for people who have not yet been convicted, of course, do all sorts of things with the sentencing uh, guidelines. Well, we have a person here who's been convicted at least of two offenses most immediately, and I gather some in the past. I believe a total of five, Your Honor. Yes. That, that is correct. And, but the state still has the ability to put restrictions on that person to lessen the risk. Well, I guess we all know as a practical matter that's not very effective many times. 
we the, read about it every day, and I guess we, we don't have to avoid that kind of general awareness of concern about just saying on a piece of paper, don't go near a schoolyard and don't do this again. It just isn't very effective with someone with this abnormality, is it? Your Honor, the only way to be totally effective would be to block up anyone who would uh, possibly commit a criminal action in the future. No, no, no. We're talking soon that, that many, uh, uh, I don't know what the statistics are, but within a certain age group, the recidiv- recidivism rate for anybody released from prison may be as high as 80%. So you could say for everybody walking out of prison, he's likely to commit the same crime. I believe that's Isn't that correct. the case. I, bet, no, I guess we could. And maybe we could preventively detain everybody that's uh, released uh, because he's committed one crime and is likely to commit another one. In order to do that, Your Honor, we would have to be talking about a preventive detention. I, I'm being facetious, Mr. Weiler. Okay. I'm puzzled about your response to Justice O'Connor. You said that uh, they could put all these other restraints on the individual. Uh, on a preponderance of the evidence that somebody's likely to commit a crime, can you put all these restraints on people? They can't go to near schoolyards and so forth? Are you, are you talking about as part of a sentence after being convicted of a crime? That's correct, Justice Stevens. As a part of the uh, parole conditions after being released from incarceration. But, yeah, but the, the statute is dealing with the problem presented by someone who served a sentence entirely, and the criminal punishment, power to punish him criminally has been exhausted. There's still a threat there, and I frankly don't see the difference between that case and one where you just indict somebody who's been caught but never convicted. And the question is, can you do those other things to that person without some kind of uh, a proof of a mental abnormality by some standard? I don't think the difference between going to jail and being subjected to a lot of other restraints can just answer this case, because the basic question in the case is, what is the threshold showing that must be made? to treat such a person or, or take him out of society uh, other than as punishment for a crime. I think we're all assuming that this is not, I mean, that, that, uh, that the punishment for a crime has already been done. And I don't, as I say, I don't see why it makes any difference whether the person has been punished or hasn't, or has just been indicted. I don't see, the, frankly, I don't see the constitutional distinction there. If, pardon me, Your Honor, the commitment could not occurs simply because someone has been indicted, I believe, unless there was a showing that the person was mentally ill. In Allen versus Illinois, the court found that the uh, that Mr. Allen was mentally ill. I believe he had schizophrenia. Yes, but what's the magic to the term mentally ill? Why can't they call call it uh, uh, having X Y Z personality factor? And, and they can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt that the person with that factor, in all probability, beyond a reasonable doubt or beyond clear and convincing evidence, will do bad things, rob banks, hurt children. Why isn't that enough if the XYZ factor is something to do with the person's character, whether you call it mentally illness or not? I don't quite understand the magic to the term mentally ill. Your Honor, there, I don't believe there is any magic to the term mentally ill, but there is a point, I believe, at which the state cannot commit someone simply because they have a history of prior commitment or criminal act, and based upon those prior commitments, is they're predicted to uh, commit another criminal act in the future. Everyone agrees with that, I think. The issue is, in addition, you have to be mentally ill, and it's like civil commitment. And how do you decide whether, for legal purposes, a person is sufficiently mentally ill? 
I suppose there are some people who are very dangerous, whom every psychiatrist would say are crazy, beyond a doubt, and are going to murder 15 other people unless they're locked up. And I'm assuming that it would be possible to lock up that person, but not lock up somebody who commits a lot of crimes, whom every psychiatrist would say there's nothing wrong with except he's a sociopath, which means he commits a lot of crimes. All right? I take that as an assumption. So what's the definition distinguishing the one from another? What I'm going to ask you about is the ALI's definition, which had for a different purpose to say that a person was insane if, as a result, in part, of a mental defect, he lacked substantial capacity. In this case, it would be to conform his conduct to the requirements of law, which would suggest a kind of irresistible impulse, a compulsion. And we know that there is, in one of the psychiatric associations' brief, evidence that some psychiatrists call this a kind of compulsion. So is the ALI test a possible test? If not, what is? And if we have some psychiatrists saying this is somewhat compulsive and others saying not, what do we do? And I think your response is that we tried this test for criminal conviction. It turned out to be a mess. Is, is there any reason it's likely to be better for psychiatric commitment? It's always possible to get somebody to, to come in with, uh, uh, with evidence on one or the other side of that irresistible compulsion rule. Uh, the, the, the courts adopted that for criminal, for, for insanity defenses, and it turned out to be chaos. I believe that is correct, Justice Scalia and Justice Breyer. The Your view, then, is that you could not lock up a person whom every psychiatrist would say has a totally uncontrollable compulsion to murder people, and they want civilly to commit him. Civilly to commit him. As in, or a person who's going to kill herself or himself. Uncontrollable impulse, though the person otherwise seems rational. We could not civilly commit such a person. And that circumstance, Your Honor, I believe that the civil commitment might be appropriate because it would be for the good of the person being committed to prevent him from killing himself and for the protection of society. But it would be based upon the original finding that the civil commitment had to be based upon a mental illness rather than simply the prior commission of crime. In any event, you, you agree with uh, General Scoville, don't you, that this matter of what the mental state is, subject to constitutional limitations, is for the state to decide, and the state here has, has defined something called mental abnormality, that sort of mental illness. I believe that the state has latitude in deciding whatever the condition is for civil commitment, so long as it is something more than just a condition based upon the prior commission of crime and the risk of commission of crime again in the future. Well, what, what's the ethical calculus that makes the dangerousness to oneself uh, so much of a higher order priority than dangerous to ten other people. I 
If I stated that, I did not mean to do so. I believe that Dana but, I mean, that's, that's the logical consequence of your answer, that you must find that it's in the person's own welfare. And I suppose we could say it's in your own welfare to prevent you from committing crimes. But leaving that aside, you seem to say it must be in the patient's own welfare to be committed before there can be a civil commitment. I believe that's correct because the person I'm asking you why that is so. Why is that so? Because the person is unable to care for themselves. But, but what's the reason for that? If we do not limit it to that, I believe we then there is no logical stopping place where we can say that a commitment for dangerousness alone would not be sufficient. Well, what, what about uh, Justice Breyer's example of someone who has said by every psychiatrist who has seen, if, he, if he's at large, he's going to murder people. Now, do you say that person can or cannot be civilly committed? Well, as I understand the ALI definition. Well, no, I'm not talking about the ALI. I'm just asking the, all, all the psychiatrists find a person is going to, if he's at large, he's going to murder people. Now, can that person be civilly committed? Based on that alone? I, well, and that the, it's a form of mental illness, uh, as one would hope they would find it. Your Honor, I believe we would be treading on very thin ice because that, in effect, is allowing for a commitment based upon what someone might do in the future, and that it would have to be based upon a finding of mental illness, which we once again come back to that has to be based upon something more than the... Uh, commission of the crime in the past and the possibility of committing crime in the well, future. Well, Allen versus Illinois certainly upheld a civil commitment uh, of persons charged with sexual offenses who are sexually dangerous persons suffering from a mental disorder and having criminal propensities to the commission of sex offenses. Uh, particularly in that case, sexual molestation of children. Now, the court upheld that notion and referred to a mental disorder. The only difference was uh, that in that case, it was offered as an alternative to incarceration for the criminal offense, as opposed to here, where it is proposed subsequent to serving the sentence. Now, does that make uh, a big difference if it, in fact, is a civil commitment? Your Honor, in Allen, the commitment there was in lieu of a criminal prosecution. Here, the state has already had a criminal prosecution. And in Allen, the justification the court gave was that it disavowed, Allen, dis, or pardon me, Illinois disavowed any interest in punishment in lieu of the civil commitment. In this case, the same uh, procedure could have perhaps been used, except the... I'm just asking you if that one factor should make a difference. Yes, Your Honor, it should. The um, commitment in Allen was of a person who was had a treatable mental illness, a schizophrenic. In this case, there's no Well, evidence. but the statute doesn't refer to that. It, it, it speaks in terms of a mental disorder having criminal propensities to the commission of sex offenses. This situation. Okay. But in Allen, the, the distinction was that it disavowed punishment. In this case, the state does not. It was for treatment. In this case, there's no treatment. And... That would conclude. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Wilder. The case is submitted.